I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest is Rebecca Seal. Rebecca is an award-winning food, drink, lifestyle, and personal development writer. She's based in London. She's often on TV. Uh, She's been a freelancer for over 10 years. And somewhere during that journey, she decided to write a book that talks about how you can work as a freelancer, which mainly is work from home. And somehow the universe conspired to make her mission very timely because the book came out part of the pandemic, really, when we started to all be locked down. The book is called Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. It's a thoroughly researched book. It pulls on behavioral science, organizational psychology, and economics and features interviews from some highly renowned and effective solo workers. I don't know which part of the conversation we'll go to. We may end up in health and fitness and food, and we may end up in working from home. Don't know. And so as we always do, I'm meeting a new friend and looking forward to an engaging conversation that I hope you will enjoy. Rebecca Seal. I know who you are, but I actually don't know exactly where we can go with this. I mean, of course, I want to go into food and nutrition and health and following your dream and all of that. I love those. So Slow Mo is very personal. It's a personal story. It's a personal conversation between two good friends, really. And you're very private. I couldn't find any of that anywhere. I mean, you're constantly on TV talking about, you know, what you cook, but... Well, I'm private to a certain extent. I'm careful about my family going online, for sure. But Good idea. I'm not... I've written about things... It may not be so easy to find because it was a long time ago, but I've written about things like having IVF in The Guardian. I wrote an article about that. And so in that sense, I'm not private. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, when it you know, When it comes to stories that I think are really worth telling. And then I guess with the work that I'm doing at the moment, which is very much about how to help people who are working from home and working remotely, because that's what my last book was about, then the thing I'm not private about there is is how how lonely I've been at times and how much I want to help people not (laughs) feel lonely. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of also a a shtick of mine. And in fact, weirdly, although I am writing another cookbook, I'm doing a lot more (laughs) work. (laughs) I'm doing a lot more work about that uh, side of things, about kind of work and loneliness and isolation and preventing it than I am about food just at the present moment, which is curious. So that, I have to admit, completely intrigued me. So your fame, you're really, really well known for being an award-winning food and drink and lifestyle and personal development writer. You, you write about those topics. And I have to admit, please, nobody, nobody listening, take offense. But there is so much interest in cooking and food and so on in the UK. While I will have to say, the food's not that great. You really have to find <laughs> a place. <laughs> 
I would argue, I would argue against that. I mean, I think it depends where you're eating. I mean, historically, yeah, we haven't had the best. <laughs> we haven't had the best food. But I think, yes, there are kind of bog standard high street places that don't kind of show the best of what we're capable of. But I do think that there are amazing places to eat here and really, really brilliant people writing about food and restaurants. So I don't disagree. I think it's changing. I think it's changing. But it's also difficult to shed that kind of historical image of people who eat overboiled vegetables and stringy meat. <laughs> I have to say it's because I was locked down in London last year and it's because part of my startup is in the UK. And our startup is in retail. And so it really studies, you know, people like Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's and so on. And I was told this story that the reinvention of the British cuisine, if you want, happened by, by M&S Food, where they started to say maybe there could be new ideas other than shepherd's pie and all of that. And that started the whole wave of like, oh my God, there is food in the world, you know, we can do. And I don't know the, 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 how true that story is, but it's, of course, if you look at around the world now, and follow people like you, people like Rupi, the Doctor's Kitchen, follow, you know, of course, the Jamie Olivers of the world and so on. I think the UK has actually been quite leading on the topic of let's show you how to eat. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think we're over-reliant on ready meals. That's certainly true. I think that a lot of people don't really cook anything from scratch and, you know, just buy trays and microwave them and put them in the oven, which is apart from in my experience being kind of a joyless and not always that healthy way to cook is very expensive. <laughs> so very, <laughs> very expensive way to feed yourself. And I guess my thing in very, a lot of what I do, a lot of the work that I do is about trying to convince people to do things to bring more joy into their world, which I guess is where we have a bit in common in that I want to, I want to try and help people to see that you can cook really easy things and really simple things that are really good for you and good for your gut and good for your microbiome without having to do kind of culinary course, <laughs> you know, that it's accessible for everybody. And where that kind of intersects with the work that I do about work and particularly working from home is that I've got a big sort of drum to bang about cooking well and eating well when you're by yourself and taking breaks when you work to feed your body and nourish your brain. And so I do a lot of stuff on my Instagram account at Beck Seal, which is about giving people 15 minute long recipes or things that are barely longer to make than a sandwich and things that you can make from bits and pieces that you might have in your cupboard and the ends of vegetables that you might have in the bottom of the <laughs> fridge um, to give yourself something that's more joyful than a than the same cheese sandwich that you've been having for however many million of months we've now been locked down for. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot have another cheese sandwich. I'll guarantee you that, you know, it's like no more. Yeah, exactly. And there's no rule that says that, you know, work from home lunch have to be sandwiches like why, why, why are we doing that to ourselves I have a recipe for noodles that I do with like where you just put boiling water in the pan and then you add a spoonful of miso paste and some noodles and some sliced up whatever vegetables you have in the fridge you know bit of cabbage bit of carrot bit of beans whatever asparagus mushrooms anything not all of them at once but just some and um and then poach an egg in the broth and then scoop it all out put it in a bowl and put some like hot sauce on the top or some soy sauce on the top boom mm -hmm. I mean that's and like eight minutes yep it's so much better. It's warming, it's nourishing, it's good for your mm. gut, it's got protein, it will keep you full up. You won't head for the hobnob biscuits at 3.30pm. <laughs> it does everything that you need. 
And I just, yeah, so that's one of my things is very much about like trying to push people in that direction, whether they want to go there or not. I have to make a confession here. I have a confession to make. So I've been researching you, of course, for now four weeks, because every time, (laughs) it's amazing, really. You know, every time we planned to have this conversation when I was sick, I would wake up in the morning, pull myself together and say, hold on, this is an important conversation. Watch some videos from Rebecca's and then we cancel it. And so the next time I would do it again (laughs) and I do it again. But the confession is, so I'm so full of that idea of, I can actually cook amazing things so quickly and it's really wonderful. Right before this, I was, it's, you know, 5.30 p.m. here in Dubai, and I hadn't eaten anything all day other than some granola and oat milk. And so I decided I'm going to eat something in the eight minutes before we started. What was it? (laughs) Crackers and olives, and that was it. You know, not even a cheese sandwich anymore, right? (laughs) It's, it's, It's really bad. I would love to spend a long time, actually, at our end of conversation to talk about nutrition and to talk about cooking. But I have to say it's a big part of happiness, to be quite honest. But I don't, I don't want people to think that this conversation is just about food. I okay. want actually, I want us to, to dive into that very important topic of how to work alone. And then promise me at the end, we chat about food so that I feel super hungry and everyone <laughs> goes and makes a, a recipe of yours afterwards. So how to work alone could not be more timely. It could not be more timely. When did you decide to write that? Did you like, okay, I'm alone and under lockdown now. I have a week to write this thing. How did that come about? No, the idea for Solo is six years old. <laughs> so six I, years, yeah. Yeah, so I've been freelance. I've been a freelance writer for about 12 years. And after about six years, I kind of raised my head for the first time from my desk and thought, I have not built the life that I want. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 all I do is work. It looked great from the outside. I'm sure my Instagram or whatever at that time looked, you know, super glossy. And like I was on TV and I was writing a book or so a year, a cookbook. And I was writing for all the broadsheet newspapers in the UK. And sometimes my work would be syndicated internationally and it all looked great. But because I was doing the TV show, which was 48 weeks a year, I hadn't been on holiday for four years. Mm. I, I hadn't, done less than a six-day week for, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how long because the show was live on a Sunday morning. And I never accounted for that in my working week. And I had a couple of columns that had to be written, like I had one that I had to follow on a Tuesday and blah, blah, blah. So I was never taking time off to account for this extra day of work that was happening that started at 5 a.m. <laughs> um, oh. So I was missing weddings, I was missing gatherings, I was missing dinners and never drank on a Saturday, you know, didn't really want to go out on a Friday, just really exhausted permanently. And I felt incredible guilt for that because it felt like I should have so much more gratitude for the situation I found myself in. But I felt like I was living somebody else's life. I felt like I was, yeah, wearing someone else's shoes. And I hadn't, I felt like I didn't know how I'd got there. And I was really lonely, like really, really profoundly lonely. I was neglecting my friends. I was neglecting my family. I was in this little bubble with just me and my husband before I had kids. And we were just working like crazy, both of us. And yeah, like I said, I didn't look up until six years in and then just thought, this isn't what I wanted at all. But I don't know what I wanted. So I went looking for a book to help me because for whatever reason, that's how I've always kind of helped myself through difficult times and couldn't find one. And somehow that discovery 
kind of coagulated in my brain into the decision that I should write the book <laughs> about it, which is an odd way to respond to a really profound problem and overwork. Exactly. It's, it's like, okay, I'm going to work a little extra to write the book that's going to help me come out of what right. I'm suffering from. There exactly. Yeah. I'm not saying it's logical, but it, it, has, it has played out okay. So anyway, that's why really there was about a four-year delay because I had too much work on and also I was going through IVF to have my first daughter and weirdly writing an extra book in amongst all of that just didn't happen. So in 2019, I was having a bit of a kind of fallow period with my work. I didn't have that much going on because I'd just come back from maternity leave. And I felt at the time like everybody had forgotten me, all my clients had forgotten me. And, you know, oh my God, what was I going to do? Was this the end kind of thing? Weirdly, that presented me with the opportunity to work a bit more on the proposal for the book. And then my agent happened to have lunch with a publisher who was setting up a new collection of personal development books. And she liked the idea. And because I didn't have anything else on, I managed to smash out a 14, I think it was about, yeah, no, what was it? I don't know, a couple of thousand words. Anyway, a lot of words in a short space of time. And she commissioned the book then and there. So I started writing it in July 2019. I finished writing it in lockdown. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, wow, for writing that so quickly, there's no way I could have written that on its own in lockdown. It's 90,000 words. It's, you know, millions of journal papers and articles and interviews with academics all over the world. And it took ages to put it together. So it's a weird, unsettling and baffling coincidence that it came out when it did. But we truly thought it was a book for a few remote workers and freelancers like me who struggled with the isolation and struggled with how to think about their work and were in a similar situation to me in terms of just working and not really thinking about any of the scaffolding that goes around that. Yeah. And, and it, it's not actually even meant to be out. It was meant to come out next month. <laughs> um, it was scheduled for next month. So we brought it forward once, we, once I'd finished writing it and we realised we could. Um, so it came out. Yeah, it, it definitely is quite needed, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it felt like that. It felt like if we could do it, um, we should. And I'm really indebted to Profile who published it because they, they pulled out all the stops to, mm -hmm. to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have to do anything once I'd written it. it just, just the magic book fairies <laughs> made it into a book. <laughs> yeah. And it's been extraordinary. It's been extraordinary. And now I get emails or Instagram messages most days from people saying that they're grateful for it and that it's helping them, which blows my, blows my mind totally. It totally is the most timely topic. So, I, you know, I, I speak about happiness all the time. And so, yeah. of course, more and more under lockdown, companies will ask me to come go talk to their staff on Zoom and so on. And it's one of the biggest topics, that whole idea of now everyone is working solo in a way, right? Everyone is staying at home. And I love the subtitle. It's basically how to work alone and not lose your mind. And I think the challenge yes. is most of us, even me, by the way, you start to lose your mind a bit. Yeah. Can you tell us why? I mean, so from all the way back to the four hours work week where, you know, sort of Tim Ferriss goes and says, you know, you don't really have to work in the system. You can be a sort of a freelancer. You can travel the world, you know, right? You take a very different approach. So you're basically saying there is a way to actually make this a wonderful life. It's not about working less. It's not about making more money. It's not about cutting corners, which I have to say four hours work week sort of totally changed my life really about, about how to do things more efficiently. Your approach is different. 
It is different. I also think the interesting thing about the four-hour work week, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is that Tim Ferriss has said that he wishes that they hadn't given it that title because <laughs> it's, it's not really about working. Yeah, yeah, it's not really about working four hours. It's about working more efficiently. But I guess the book title "How to Work More Efficiently" is less <laughs> less alluring than "How to Work yeah. for Only Four Hours a Week." Yeah. So I guess my I'm not really that. I was going to say interested. That's not the right word. My thing is not really about. Oddly, it's not really about the work that you do. I don't really have strong feelings about what the work is that people do. It's about the way they build their lives around that work and about not putting work in the dead centre space of your life and not allowing it to expand into all the corners where it has no right to be. So the joy of smartphones is that we're endlessly continuously contactable and that means that work is at the breakfast table it's in bed it's at the gym it's on your run it's in your garden it's it's everywhere and it has no right to be in those places and historically would never have been in those places so i i am keen to remind people that work has a place and is very important, but it's not the most interesting thing about you. <laughs> it's not the thing. It's not what defines you. It's part of it, of course, but it's not the thing that is the most important thing about you. Also, the thing I like to emphasise is that working on your own in a pandemic is not the same as working on your own <laughs> normally, right? Like working from home in a pandemic is not the working from home experience that most people have. And I've been working from home for 12 years and this past year has probably been the most difficult for me because it's all of our pressure release valves are taken away. All of the ways in which we would kind of recharge and much of the advice that I, I want to give to people is illegal. <laughs> You know, how did we get how did we get to that point? <laughs> um, so it's a real it's a real tangle at the moment, but it's possible. You can definitely do it. That I mean, and, and that's why I'm not I'm not against the Tim Ferrises of this world. And I'd want to help people work efficiently. And there is stuff about productivity and time management lots in the book. But it's more about getting your work done. And I guess this is where I am similar to Tim Ferriss. It's like getting your work done so you can go off and do something else. So you can go so off can and live. live the bit of your life, which is more, you know, whatever that might be, the thing which is more about you than the work that you do. I'm really tempted to ask you about making work not the center of your life. I'll come back to that because I want some of those illegal advice. I mean, this is just a podcast. so <laughs> <you know. laughs> Yeah, right. Tell me a few tips and tricks. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Well, the, no, that's the horrible irony, isn't it? I'm not going to tell you to go out and take drugs. I want to tell you to go and see your friends. And that's what we're not allowed mm. to do. That's the pain of it. I am all about helping people to create social buffers and social interactions. I'm sure you know the psychologist, Dr. Laurie Santos at um, Yale, but she has a lovely metaphor where she describes happiness as being like pumping up a tyre, you know, that you constantly need to just give it little pumps of, of happiness. And I see that as very key for people who work by themselves. I mean, in general, it's a great sort of way of describing it. But but for people who work by themselves, I think we need those little um, social interactions that you don't get when you're not commuting and you're not kind of traveling and seeing your clients or, you know, and you're not in an office. So you're not having kind of constant social interaction infusions, as it were. And and that's really that's really hard at the moment, because I want to say, go to the shops, don't buy all your stuff online for your business, kind of go and interact with real people because there's so much data that shows that those shallow social interactions are really, really key to our well-being. 
And that's one of the reasons why we're all struggling so much at the moment, because we are missing out on those kind of incidental social interactions that we didn't we didn't even realise that we needed. But the, the ones where you go and get a coffee or you take, get a takeout sandwich or whatever it might be, it turns out that those those bits of contact, those eye contact even, one study showed with other humans, they make us feel rooted in our communities. They make us feel like we belong somewhere and they make us feel, they make us feel happy, <laughs> you know, straightforwardly happy. And we're missing out on those. So yeah, I, you know, that's my legal advice. <laughs> go and find some people, congregate safely. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I'll tell you surprisingly of course we all love a deep conversation like the one you and I were you know are having but I adore the little conversations you know the small talk with the barista making my coffee or with the with the shop and and you have no idea I mean it makes a difference to me but also makes a difference to them and I think I don't know if that's illegal really I mean in an interesting way you're supposed to be allowed to go to the shop I think we become lazy around it and say, let's order things online. Two days ago, I, I basically was trying to use Deliveroo to deliver my lazy dinner as I sometimes end up doing after a long day of work and it just didn't work. And I was so grateful. I walked outside, went to a place where they gave me a nice fresh salad and you know, it's a supermarket, but it's still a wonderful fresh salad and it was you know, a change. Can we go back to the most pivotal question, I think, in human modern history? the idea of defining ourselves with our work. Why do we fall in that trap, do you think? Oh, yeah, that is the big question, isn't it? Um, I've been thinking and talking about this so much recently because I think that it causes quite a lot of pain for people, don't you think? I think there's, I mean, there's lots of reasons. That one of them is this kind of quite dangerous notion, I think, of passion, that this idea that you should do something that you're passionate about and that this kind of passion word gets banded about in conversations about work. Because I work in food, I see it a lot with chefs. And I don't think there's any kind of, I don't think it's a surprise that you see in an industry which is kind of so passion driven, or says it is, you see very high rates of um, mental health problems, alcoholism, drug use. And often it correlates with extremely long hours. I mean, I'm sure you know this, but there's an interesting piece of research that shows that if you consider yourself to be passionate about your job, you're more likely to be exploited. You're more likely to be asked to do tasks which are not within your job description. You're more likely to be asked to do long hours. So it's actually not a great thing to attribute to yourself <laughs> to say that you're passionate. So I think that's part of it. I think there's a kind of dangerous linguistic game that we play with ourselves. I mean, I even had a notebook when I was a kid. It was like a, a girl's feminist notebook or something. And it said something in it along the lines of find what you love and get someone to pay you for it. You know, that sounds great on paper. You sort of think, yeah, 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 that is, that's what I, that's what I want to do. But actually, sometimes it's good to have things you love that aren't your work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you need to have that too, right? You, you, I mean, great, if you love your work, and I am in a very privileged position to say I do enjoy my work a lot, you know, then that's great. But also, I, I think, as I said earlier, our lives are bigger than that. Our identities are bigger than that. And putting all of our kind of, our identity importance into the job that we do yeah, can have really damaging consequences. Because what happens when that job is difficult? What happens when you can't do that job? I mean, I know musicians at the moment who are deeply struggling with who they are as a person. Like, who the hell are they? Because they're not playing and performing or teaching or any of the other myriad things they could be doing. Like, it has shaken them to their cause. They are, and they're really struggling because their sense of identity is so 
completely bound up in the job that they do. And I don't think we teach young people not to think that way. I think we teach them knowingly or not culturally. I think we talk about work and because the people in the public eye with kind of big jobs tend to be footballers and actresses and celebrities and so on who who use words like passion we don't we don't sort of say yeah you know yeah maybe aim to just do something you like that is nice and with people who you respect <laughs> you know like rather than these kind of shooting for the stars type things which actually i don't know maybe they can maybe that can hurt you at the same time i don't want to stop anyone following their dreams but Maybe we just need to be a bit more realistic about what that looks like, because I also think we're not very good. Um, and there's a brilliant book called Grit um, by Angela Duckworth. Oh, I love Grit, yeah. yeah. Such a good book, such a good book, where she goes into this. You know, we don't like to look behind the facade of success. Yeah. We don't like to see what went before, the failures, the the slog, the grind, the the repetitive things that had to be done again and again and again in order to get somewhere. We just like to look at the shiny front bit <laughs> and we expect that to happen to ourselves. And when we don't experience that, because literally nobody does, we struggle with that too. I just think it's a bit of a mess. It is a mega, mega mess. Actually, I've never, I speak about this a lot and I, I think you articulate it so well. When I talk to people, I say, you should never do a job you don't like. That's true. Yeah, that's very different than Actually, I think people mostly hear me say I should do a job that I'm crazy about. And I actually don't think there is a job you can be crazy about because it's a job. And you, can, you really have to be a very good liar to lie to yourself and say that making the books reconcile at the end of the year is a wonderful passion of yours. You can't say that. At the height of my career, I was the chief business officer of Google X. This is the place where you meet the smartest people and work on sexy products that are going to change the world. I can tell you openly it was not fulfilling. It was a job because there was that bit of it where you work on big problems and those problems can, you know, help others. Solving them can help others. There is that bit of being excited to be around wonderful people. But there is the other bit of bureaucracy and the guys from PR wanting us to shut up and not say certain things and others, people from HR wanting us to do that and, you know, not pointing finger at anyone. But a job is never fulfilling. It's only, you can only dream as far as to say, well, I love the people I work with. I enjoy it. It doesn't make me unhappy. And I think that's good enough. Now people would ask and say, but isn't writing a job? No, to me it isn't. And I think that's really where I find my joy. I don't write to make money. I don't write to pay the bills. And because it's that way, I can actually consider it to be a passion. I, if I don't write for three months, it's my choice. If I want to write for 16 hours tomorrow, it's my choice. And that's very, very different. I think people don't see it that way. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think it's really important to lay out what jobs really look like. You know, people often say to me, oh, I'm sure food writing is very glamorous, isn't it? And don't you go to all the best restaurants? Like, well, no, because I'm, I'm not a restaurant critic. And actually, I know being a restaurant critic is not glamorous either. It's quite hard work. But also, you know, I write cookbooks, which means I go to the supermarket a lot to buy ingredients for recipes. I work on recipes. So I cook maybe seven or 10 things in a day. Do you? You know, half of which sometimes on a recipe when I'm writing recipe books. Yeah. Between Mm. Uh, yeah, between five and ten dishes a day, depending on what the book is and how complicated wow. they are. Wow, who eats that? Can I come pick well, up the Well, exactly. <laughs> 
that's what I mean. It's like there's a mixture of challenges. So so you buy a lot of ingredients and you cook a lot of food. Maybe half of them will be things where you think, yep, yep, that's right. So they'll have to be done again. And then you have to figure out what you do with all the food. So you figure out the freezer space and all that. But then we also have a WhatsApp group on the street so that we can kind of make sure that nothing gets um, left over. Because my husband also has a photography studio at the bottom of our road. Oh, amazing collaboration. Yeah, so so he's a food photographer. Um, and so he's often got lots of leftover food in the studio. So we're always trying to allocate it and portion it up so that it doesn't get wasted. And then there's all the washing up. There's like a vast amount of washing up. <laughs> so more often than not, you will see me. I mean, I probably spend most, I don't know, I was going to say most days. That's an exaggeration. But well, when I'm working on a book, it's not. Wearing an apron, wearing flat shoes that are comfortable, wearing something that isn't going to matter if I get tomato all over it with, you know, scraggly hair tied. Like, it's so very far from glamorous. It's a nice job. I enjoy it. I'm not complaining about it. But all that people see online is me six months later with a book in my hands going, ta-da, I did another one. Yay, me. You know, and I tried to tell the story a bit more profoundly, but and a bit more kind of with more detail. But like, that's mostly what people will take. And then I'm occasionally on the telly and and then I occasionally write other stuff for newspapers. But again, like today, my task today is to pretty much 100% rewrite an article that I wrote for a newspaper that I thought was finished. And I got it back with loads of the digital equivalent of red pen all over it. Like I hadn't done what they wanted at all. So I'm having to redo it, which is a galling experience, <laughs> as these things always are. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I like my job very much. There are parts of it that I love, but there are other parts of it that are spreadsheets, that are grind, that are repetitive, that are washing up, whatever. Like it's not, nobody has anything that's all one thing. Even the people who are, you know, celebrities and influencers or whatever, there's still kind of icky bits that we don't share going on behind the scenes. Totally. And we, yeah. don't, we don't talk about that enough, though, do we? We don't yeah. talk about anything behind the facade. On that butt shot on Instagram that people go like, oh my God, that's amazing. I th you know, people need to understand that it must have been 200 shots that were yeah. not really, you know, uh, even shareable to start. And what would your advice be? I mean, if every one of us has a bit, bits of their job that they don't like, what do we do? Do we all change careers? Um, I mean, no, I don't think so. I often say I'm not really in the business of telling people what career to do or or to go freelance or whatever. Like I don't, my book is more about a set of questions, conversation that I'd like us all to have with ourselves about what our life, what life we want and who indeed we even are at work. Like I think one of the things that we, we are not very well equipped to do perhaps as humans, but certainly in the kind of cultural sort of work setup that we're in now is we're just not very good at having conversations about what it is that we want from our lives. So, so I think that's part of it. And then the other part of it, I think is, um, I mean, there's an interesting thing called job crafting. Have you come across that theory? It's a, an academic theory within work. Adam Grant, who is a brilliant thinker on this stuff, an organizational psychologist, talks about it a lot, but there's a few other academics who are involved with coming up with the theory. But basically it's about Again, having a conversation with yourself, it's about saying, uh, what are the bits of the of work of my work that I really enjoy? What are the bits that I enjoy less? And is there a way that I can craft my job so that I do more of those things and less of the other things? And, that, you know, that's quite a long view way of looking at your career. But it's been very helpful for me because it's allowed me to kind of shed some aspects of my work that made me miserable. One of them being dealing with money. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, tell me more. <laughs> well, yeah, I wish. Yeah, I grew a magic money tree and that was how I solved it. No. <laughs>
No, I just outsourced everything. I outsourced all the money stuff. I outsourced all the chasing invoices and getting angry about people who haven't paid and sending threatening letters to people like after two years of not paying and all that kind of stuff. Like I just outsourced it. I, I paid someone for whom it's their absolute specialism and they really enjoy. And I'm now in a much happier place because that's dealt with and reliably done. And, and I don't have to have conversations with people who I want to employ me again that are difficult so that's you know that's one thing but I've you know I've done it in lots of other ways as well there are some things I don't write about anymore because I didn't find them particularly joyful to write about there are things that I'll say no to I've stopped doing events particular kinds of events when I was on telly a lot I used to do quite a lot of um drinks based events where I would kind of showcase a product and make some cocktails and I just found them so terrifying and so excruciating and I've just I, and they're very well paid but I just got to the point where I had to say look look for your own well-being you have to stop doing these so yeah it's interesting there's a kind of four-stage process with job crafting that you go through where you kind of you look at different aspects of, of what you do and the relationships that are inherent to what you do and how you could leverage them better and are there ones that you could make deeper connections that you could forge which will help you move into directions that you'd prefer to be in and that kind of thing so I guess in a way I'd rather see people engage a bit more in that before deciding to kind of chuck it all up unless you've got a really strong clear idea of what you want to do because otherwise I feel as though there's a risk that you just kind of endlessly shift from thing to thing to thing looking for the perfect thing when actually the responsibility is on us to kind of build the best thing for ourselves rather than constantly kind of flip from thing to thing expecting to land in a space that's going to suit us perfectly. I think that's incredible. I mean the whole idea of meeting yourself and actually being open and honest. I think the challenge is twofold, you know, we never really ask ourselves what it is that we like the questions that you mentioned in solo, you know, what does work represent to us? You know, all of those interesting questions. I think we just come out of university, we jump into a job, you know, and then 20 years later, if you have a low degree, you're still doing law somehow. And in the middle, you got married and you have kids and you have a mortgage and you're just running through it, right? So, so we rarely ever stop to ask ourselves those questions. And then I think there is a a bit of a lack of honesty, if you want. I, I was talking to a friend the other day and he basically said, we all wear masks. Can you please take off the mask when you talk to yourself? And I think that's a, a very interesting view. Can you sit with yourself and say, look, I don't know, like, uh, you know, traveling around the world like I used to do when I was a Google executive 50 weeks of the year seems to be very glamorous, but do you actually enjoy that? Do you actually want to do that at all, Right. I think that kind of honesty is a bit lacking for most of us. Because it's hard, because it's hard and sometimes it's painful and it's frightening. Okay, hold on. So um, I think we will probably have to split this into two episodes. I think you probably are enjoying this conversation as much as I do. While you're at it, just rate this podcast five stars. It really helps me spread the message. And don't stop, just continue and listen to the next episode as we continue the conversation with Rebecca Seal, talk about lockdown and working from home and how it impacts women differently than men to talk about how it is that Rebecca finds ways to get her husband to contribute to the household in ways that reduce the mental load. I think you'll enjoy the second part of the conversation very much. So join us as we continue on the next episode. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mogaudet, Slow Mo, 
solve for happy or one billion happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.